This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. I remember at one time uh, we were playing some big uh, Halloween costume ball at the Waldorf. And... uh, there was a picture of me in one of the columns in the Daily News, and it said, big man on the Halloween scene. And uh, my father really (laughs) took that to town every time I would see him. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the intermission in this special two-part interview with David Johansson, that tantalizing article, as his nun teacher used to call him, who, from his time as the lead singer of the New York Dolls to his turn as that coolest of cool singers, Buster Poindexter, has fascinated us throughout his long, epic career. This really is a portrait of an artist in the process of becoming. If you haven't listened to part one yet, this is the time to switch back to catch up. When we left David, he just had a scary encounter over the draft during the Vietnam War. He couldn't go into the details, but suffice it to say, he didn't end up in Saigon. It was the East Village in Manhattan that was calling to him. Now David had grown up on Staten Island. There were brothers and sisters, adventurous bike rides with friends, a sort of purgatory in Catholic school, and a sense of freedom that came with switching to the public high school where he fell in with fellow beatniks and started a band called the Vagabond Missionaries. Staten Island was the setting for David's coming-of-age years, and Manhattan would see him move into his next act. Now, as you listen to him talk about the early days of the dolls and beyond them, think about the nature, the essence of being an artist, and what in their origin stories is knowable, and what remains enigmatic, even to them, as they continue looking around the corner following their instincts and their muses. We pick up my conversation with David after I asked him about the five-mile run the Staten Island Ferry makes between his hometown and Manhattan. I wondered, what was it about the city that was pulling him toward it? Oh, I, I knew I was going to live there for a long time, yeah. How did you know? Like, what, what, what was because it about it? Because there was someplace else, to, <laughs> there was someplace else to, to live where you could, like... Uh, pursue what I was pursuing. And so when you had that dream of New York, what, what was the dream? It wasn't a dream. It was just like everybody you would meet, you know, would be smart and alive and, you know, and just kind of break out of that, uh, of people being like, predestined to 
some kind of drudgery or something, you know. I was in school, and this guy I kind of knew, but uh, he said to me, you know, um, if you're looking for a job, I know this guy on St. Mark's Place who's got like a little tchotchke shop. He didn't say it in so many words. And you could work there. So I went and saw this guy, Lore Wilson, his name was. And then, um, you know, I wound up working in the basement, making, cutting out earrings from beer cans and selling them as pop art in the mail order department. But uh, through him I met uh, the people in the Ridiculous Theater, you know, Charles Ludlum, sure. Bill Vare, like that. So uh, I was like, these are like the greatest people I ever could imagine, you know. So it just kind of like when I finished school, I just, you know, decided that's where I was going to live. So. Where did you first stay? You know? Oh, I got an apartment on 3rd Street, uh, the Hells Angels block. Um, it was a seventh floor walk up, like a railroad flat with a bathtub in the kitchen, and it was like 40 bucks. Well, it isn't crystal love at last. Tiffany Knight. Take my fox, will you, Rod? My secretary. He's my rod and my staff. <laughs> Crystal, darling, I'm thrilled to meet you. I understand this is your first public appearance. With that figure, I can see why. Charles Ludlum is a fascinating character, and, you know, you think about some of his plays, like The Big Hotel and Bluebeard, and, you know, what, what was your exposure to that, and what impression did it make on you, and what he was doing? I mean, I understand... When that I first met them, they would do, like, uh, plays in, like a gay grindhouse way down on West 42nd Street, like the gay porno movies would end at like midnight and then they would set up and do play, like it would, they would change the crowd, of course, but they would do these plays. So when I met them, they had just really started their club. Did you sometimes perform with them? Well, you know, I would be a spear carrier. <laughs> what attracted you to them? I just thought they were, uh, you know, the majority of people that I knew, they were doing things like what I, how I considered correctly. <laughs> they weren't, you know, and they all came from other places, really, to be themselves, so to speak. But I'm thinking, I mean, David, like two or three years before this, you're in Catholic high school. Right, and now you're on Forty Second Street. These shows, yeah. What, you know, it's such a such a shift. Well, let me let me explain. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I used to go to Grants Village a lot when I was a teenager. You know, before I left Staten Island, I used to go there a lot. You know, and uh, my when I was a little kid, like even like in the fifties, my aunt Pat used to have a girlfriend who lived upstairs from, uh, I think it was called O'Henry's Steakhouse. It was on 6th Avenue and like 4th Street. 
So she used to take me there a lot. And I remember we would go to these restaurants, like we went, we would go to this like Jamaican restaurant where people were, it was all gaily colored and people were singing and Enjoy laughing. yourself and have lots of fun. So, you know, I always had, like, a very strong affection for Greenwich Village. And what's, what's your plan? Are you kind of just open and seeing where things go, or do you have a sort of a goal in mind at that time? Kind of- I wanted to be in a band, but uh, so the Vagabond I haven't really found one yet. The Vagabond Missionaries sort of, that ended... Yeah, because, you know, they, were, they moved on. Some of them got drafted and... You know, whatever. Okay. Some of them, you know, started working for Con Ed. You know, was, I was kind of finished with it. With, we were all finished with that. I met Arthur on McDougal Street. He came up to me and said, hey, uh, I hear you play um, bass. I started when I met... Um, you liar. I met no, Arthur no, on no, McDougal Street. that's not how it started. My voice, my voice went, you know, it didn't last too long, you know. I was really young and I couldn't sing. What? Now I can sing. Now we got David. Well, how'd you find David? Well, Billy found David. <laughs> Billy found David, you know. We used to know David, you know, we used to see each other all the time. And, you know, we used to never talk to each other. I never knew he was a singer, so Billy brought him over to my house. And um, I said, I said, you a singer? I didn't know you were a singer. He said, you're a guitar player. And that's what we did. But so often in New York, proximity is key, and it sounds like that played a role in meeting Arthur Kane and Billy Mercia. So in terms of where you're living and how you how you discovered the guys that would eventually become the dolls with you. Um, if you can tell that story, but tell it in the most local way you can. In other words, there, there's so much myth around a band like that. Just thinking about it as a New York occurrence, sort of a local event, what, what can you... I think, you know, the catalyst for me was like, I used to work for Laura Wilson and he would always like in a very bitchy voice say to me, you're not going to be in a band. You're never going to do nothing. And I would be thinking, like, I'll show him. I'll show him. Because, you know, I'd be, like, cutting out that metal with the metal scissors. And so uh, one day Billy and Arthur came to my door, and they said that they heard I was a singer. And then we went over to John's apartment and... uh, played a couple of songs, and I just thought, you know, why don't I just like throw in with these guys and see what happens. And the band sort of originated before you, but you became the lead singer of the Dolls, and I'm just wondering what you think you brought to the dynamic, I mean, other than your talents, like, what were you bringing? Brains. No. <laughs> <laughs> just like the chemistry. <laughs> they didn't really have a band. Uh-huh. They just had like an idea for a bit. Yeah. And in terms of being the front man of this group, 
Mm-hmm. You mentioned a lot of things already. Kind of, we've talked about Helen Wolf and Janis Joplin, and all, as you start to think about the role of a frontman and what you're going to do with it, where are you pulling from in terms you of know, building your character? I didn't think about it. I just was it. Texas, Kansas City, and created a sellout. Joel Siegel went over to find out what it was all about, and filming a rehearsal, he found a cross between the Rolling Stones and Alice Cooper. You're the prima ballerina on the spring afternoon. The chains on it to the wolf band. How did I go through? How did I go through? Not a person. You got a wild hip on the spot. And so I got to know the Like the last wave of rock and roll was like mostly it was in San Francisco, and it was it had a, a definite um, purpose. I mean, the franchisement of franchisement of certain people to become united under a certain kind of music. That's what rock and roll has always been, and um, this form of music just kind of represents uh, the next generation, like the under 21 kind of people relate to this music. It's like their own music. How do you decide what you're going to wear for the first show or those early shows? I think I wore a white suit, like a white linen suit that was an antique. But uh, I can't even remember where we played, you know, like some loft party or something. I mean, the first time we played in front of people, we were, we were rehearsing up on the Upper West Side in the, in the wintertime in a bicycle shop. Well, he broke down bikes. And then there was a welfare hotel across the street. And some people from the hotel came over and said that they were having their Christmas party and their entertainment didn't show up or something like that. And would we come over and play? So we went over there and played. You know, Otis Redding kind of songs like... Don't you mess with Cupid, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, p- pretty soon after we started playing, uh, we went to uh, play at the Mercer Arts Center like every Tuesday at midnight or something like that, you know, in uh, the Oscar Wilde room. And uh, we were kind of like, I would, you know, I, for lack of a better description, we were like the band of the neighborhood, and it was a beautiful scene, you know. And I guess me as being like uh, the chief speechwriter, or I mean lyricist, um, <laughs> I would write songs that I guess reflected that in a way. Not like purposely, but and what, what was the beauty? Was it the diversity? What was the was beauty? It, yeah, when you say it was beautiful. Just people being creative, you know, smart people being creative, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were a lot of people would come to that uh, Tuesday night soiree uh, who were just, you know, like getting started as far as, like, if they were going to be, like, you know, fashion designer or filmmaker or, uh, you know, you name it, right? And they would all, not all, but I mean, those kind of people would come to the show and, you know, 
like network with each other and stuff, you know. And we were just like the band, really, you know. So it was, it was cool. The band sits at inter intersection of so many interesting later labels that we put on things. Glam rock, heavy metal, hard rock, punk rock. But it's for you, as you say, you're just doing your thing. But in terms of the, the, the style that you were going to bring to it, it's particularly the high heels and, and put, you know, wearing a dress and lipstick and makeup and that sort of performative aspect to it. You know, what, what, where did that come from? You know, well, we, you know, we, most of us lived in East Village. And that's like, you know, like people were like doing it. I mean, people were decked out in the East Village in those days. I mean, the, not the majority of the people, maybe, you know, maybe not even half the people, but the people who like counted, you know, were uh, doing this thing in all different forms, you know. No, I was good friends with uh, Jackie Curtis. I work in a speak that's dim and dingy Where spenders are pretenders cheap and stingy All I smell is rotten scotch and gin Dear cigarettes, cigars That whole gang of people from the, you know, from the get-go, I was already dressed up. So were, so were the rest of the guys. There was a lot of great thrift warehouses in the East Village, and everything's been picked dry now. There's a place somewhere with someone waiting there. I can almost see them smile. I was thinking about the younger the boy in you, how you trusted your instincts. When did, when did you feel that the boy inside of you, kind of the, the, the self inside, was clicking and in sync with the physical part of you, the body that you were in, you know, versus the kid who was, you know, humiliated in the sixth grade by the nun, <laughs> right? Or riding your bike or getting chased through uh, the passageways of Brooklyn on the B under the BQE. When did you feel like the, the voice I've had inside, the, the, the story that's been in, in me, it clicks now? I don't know, but I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah you just kind of do things that interest you, right? So if I lose interest in something, then you know, I, usually something else comes along. Like uh, That's you know, the same thing musically, you know. So with music, I, the way I figure it, there's like uh, so many musics on the planet that you probably couldn't even hear like a song from each genre in your lifetime. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, I have a thing like that I, I noticed like if music's playing, if, like if I'm in a store or something, right? Um, and if I'm not interested, it doesn't catch my interest, I don't even really hear it, you know? And then something will come along in the mix that all of a sudden I'm like, wait, wait, what is that? And then I try, I'll try to find out, you know, what it was and pursue that or whatever. 
uh, like I'm thinking of the gay liberation movement, Stonewalls in 69, sexual revolutions happening. You've got Liza Minnelli and Cabaret and Liza with a Z, you know, in 72. You know, where, where, does, where do the dolls fit in that milieu in New York? Like that. Where do we fit? Yeah. In terms of Just a, right there. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. I remember that at that time my father said to me at one time, he said, I know what you're trying to do. And I said, what? He said, cabaret. You're trying to be, he meant the movie. You're trying to be like cabaret. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I haven't really seen that film. I am your host. Welcome in cabaret, cabaret, I came to visit my mother. And we were eating together, having a couple of drinks. And my mother said, I'm going to school because she's Sister Marilyn, who's, she's 10 years younger than me, so she was like eight. I guess. She's having a, a exhibit in the science fairs tonight. You want to come? And I was like, no, <laughs> no way. I'm not going there. She said, come on, come, and it'll be fun. But you know, my mother used to like to, uh, in situations like that, she used to like use me as a secret weapon, kind of a thing, because she kind of knew the reaction that she, that uh, I would get, because I had like really long hair, you know, I had like a bracelet on, you know. So we go in there, and then Sister Regina's there, and but this time she's like 150, and she comes running up to me, and uh, she says, Jansen. You look great. I guess because I had like uh, hair like Jesus or something at that time, you know. <laughs> I don't know why she thought I looked great, but she did. What were you telling them about what was going on across the channel? I think they York? probably read read in the papers or something what was going on. I never felt any kind of like uh, vibe. Let's say, like Rava, you know. <laughs> I don't think it was like that. Did you? No, I just think yeah. you know. I was like in a rock and roll band, and uh, maybe they didn't exactly like understand rock and roll, but they thought that I was probably doing a pretty good job of it by uh, tarting it up a little bit, you know. I remember at one time uh, we were playing some big, uh, this was in that era, the early days, we were playing some big uh, Halloween costume ball at the Waldorf. And uh, there was a picture of me in one of the columns in the Daily News. They used to have a lot of showbiz columns in the Daily News. There was a picture of me and it said, big man on the Halloween scene. And uh, my father really <laughs> took that to town every time I would see him. What were among the most unusual places you played in those years in New York? We played at a, a gay bathhouse called Man's Country. 
Come to Man's Country. See what we're all about and what we have to offer. Man's Country is a full-facility, multi-leveled complex that was designed to feature something for everyone. Come to Man's Country and develop your body or a friendship with somebody else's. Visit us once and you'll come again and again. For the best workout in town, it's Man's Country, 28 West 15th Street. Just like a bunch of guys sitting around in towels. Uh-huh. And you're in a band perform like. They had like uh, cabarets there, I guess. I don't know. Somebody hired us to play there. And we would take any gig we could get because we really wanted to have some, you know, experience. Um, What we were about, like, especially, you know, in those early days, from my perspective, was just, you know, like this utopian kind of freedom that uh, people should have, you know? Very early on in the band's story, uh, the drummer, Billy Mercia, died. He was 21. Right. And so thinking about that, coming so soon after Janis Joplin's death, who was someone that you really admired from afar, and others, Morrison, Hendrix, the other. Uh, so I was just thinking, given that you lost someone in your band at 21, was an early death something that you yourself feared? No. This? No. I never learned my lesson. The dolls and that incarnation sort of end in 76, you know, end of, I think your last live show in New York was in well, 76. Well, we wrote, really ended earlier than that, I think. We, we, Syl and I had a band that we used to do. Right. Doll stuff. Looking back at it, uh, just thinking about the kind of the quick run you had, your second album was Too Much Too Soon. D- is, there, is there a part of the doll story and kind of where it sits in the New York music scene and, and the larger one that it sort of is a forerunner, but that's not, I'm sure, it, when you're in it, that's not how it feels. You don't feel like you're a forerunner of something, you're just in it. But in high, it's one of those bands that people look a lot at. What I want to know is how did the pre-Raphaelites know yeah. that the Raphaelites were right. coming? Locally, and then you start touring outside of New York as that group. Yeah, it was always an adventure. I'm thinking, like the the contrast between performing out of town and then in town, Mm. sort of, you know, were there places that it felt a little bit more risky to be performing as the Dolls? Yeah, I mean, the first time we played out of town, we played some like club in Long Island, and where they, you know, all showed up in like muscle cars and. And I was like, oh, man, this is like 10 years ago, you know. And the place just like went crazy. Like uh, they had to clear the place out. The owner who was like, you know, kind of like mobby was kind of like (laughs) murder us. It was just crazy. Why? Because of the the sound, the look? What what was so bad? Uh, it's kind of uh, caused a lot of like uh, sexual tension, I think, be- between uh, guys and g- 
girls and they started fighting and they kind of opened, there was a big kind of airplane hanger of a place and they opened the doors on each side and just like, the bouncers just pushed everybody out. And uh, Billy, uh, the drummer, started like making this kind of speech like a manifesto about how fucked up they were. David, as you think about those years, are there particular sounds or smells or, or cues that trigger and take you take you back to that time? Uh, sometimes I will catch uh, a breath of something unidentifiable, but usually that brings me back to being like five or six and coming into the city, you know. And thinking like, you know, like the first time I smelled it or something, you know what I mean? So that will occur on rare occasion. And can you think of a specific example of something that does that? Oh, you know, maybe it's like uh, chestnuts mixed with exhaust fumes mixed with a sizzling hamburger or something. And when they take you back, what are you seeing in your mind? Like, what are the images? I see that... uh, picture of, you know, uh, Whitehall Mm. as it was in the Coney Island of my mind. You introduced yourself to the public as Buster Poindexter. And that's how I first knew you as a kid. You know, that, that's how you entered my consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scrooged and that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the image of Buster Poindexter as a saloon singer, you know, in the tuxedo, slick-backed hair. You originally started playing ballads, but then it would, jump, it would go to jump jazz. And you performed at places like Tracks in New York. You released an album a few years later. Um, and it was really a phenomenon. Where did... Buster live inside of you before we got to meet him? Well, after the Dolls, when I had the David Johansson group, I think we made like four or five records for Sony. Um, and we did all that traveling. We played in a lot of hockey rinks, opening for, I call them heavy metal bands, but what all different kinds of bands. And uh, <laughs> I, I often say it was like officiating at Hitler youth rallies. There wasn't much you could really communicate, at, you know, except like through your songs, but you couldn't really stop and reflect. There was a bar around the corner from my apartment called Tramps on 15th Street, and I used to go there, and uh, I decided I wanted to do just like four Mondays of, I didn't even know what it was, just where I could sing songs that I wanted to sing. Um, 
get away from the repetition that I had been doing. And so um, I started doing that, and then it just became like uh, a thing, you know. I started making essentially like as much money as I did killing myself on the road, right? And so, uh, you know, it was really kind of like more like me as far, and instead of like uh, presenting this kind of uh, idealized version. The idealized version being what, what came before? Yeah, in, in, in the years between the dolls and Buster, yeah. A lot of times when you're playing uh, in uh, like an arena, it's just like pandemonium in there. Mm -hmm. you, know? you can't really reflect or make a joke even, you know. And, you know so I started telling jokes uh -huh. that I liked even though there were groaners, a lot of them. And I started picking a repertoire of songs that I always had wanted to sing. And uh, it just kind of came together. Um, and I wanted to use a nickname because I didn't want people coming and shouting for Johansson songs. You know what I mean? I just wanted to like, be cool. And I, I noticed in terms of the timing, David, that your, your father, yeah. Died in May of '84, yeah. which is right around the same time that Buster becomes a public, you know, uh, persona. Did your father get to meet Buster? He came to a lot of shows yeah. that I did at the Bottom Line, and uh, you know, I would only invite them to places where they would be comfortable. I was going to invite them to like a mosh pit or something, you know. But did he? Did he live long enough to meet Buster Poindexter? And I the think C he CU did, but I can't remember because... Because in going in the direction you did with, with that music, sort of ballads, jump jazz, and some of the kind of, uh, you know, classic songs, that it was, might have been music that would have resonated with him in a way that some of the earlier things <laughs> that you, you played didn't. Yeah, I guess, but I don't think he was... When he was young, he was into, like, popular music so much. I yeah. think, you know, my mother appreciated it, but I don't think I don't think it was his cup of tea. He was into that Edvard Grieg, man, you know, like let me let me think, let me do some thinking here. <laughs> he was kind of like Max von Sydow, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> but he dug the rock and roll, you know, when he like he sometimes he would mention a song to me that he really liked one time said to me, you know that Bohemian Rhapsody, that's a pretty good record. <laughs> <laughs> sense, David, that he had ex expectations of, of you? Because you, you, you mentioned that he said, don't go into insurance, don't, don't have this life. Uh, I always got the feeling that it was like, you know, as long as you're happy kind of a thing. Um, you know, my older brother's a lawyer and he worked for this very prestigious firm, 
Uh, I think he uh, sold the Empire State Building once, among other things. But uh, my sister, older sister, is a school teacher. My younger brother's a librarian. The next one down, my sister Elizabeth, she was an administrator at the University of Idaho. The other sister, who's the youngest sister, is a kindergarten teacher. Right? I mean, those are all professional tracks, and then there's you, right? So it sounds like you were on your own, your own path, you know, carving your own way. Well, everybody You're... carves their own way, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, they all like me, though. about the song, the I mean, beautiful orchestral piece that you composed, Mara Dreams, The Moongate of Uncommon Beauty, oh. which a Staten Island Composers Project right. commissioned you to write in 2007. You know, Mara and I love a lot of classical music. And um, so I decided, well, this is a good opportunity to compose one because it'll get played. You know, like I always think, well, I want to make a piece, but who, you know, it's not gonna really get played. So this was actually gonna get played. So uh, I started composing this uh, piece. You've heard the piece, right? I think it's pretty good. I was there while an orchestra performed it. At the St. George Theater? Yeah. Which was a movie palace when you were a kid. Did you go see movies there when you were a kid? Yeah. It's a beautiful theater. Yeah. Yeah. A moon gate is sort of like a portal. That's a portal in a snug harbor of uh, the Chinese Scholar's Garden, which is kind of a beautiful place. And uh, they have that, I think it's called the Moon Gate of Uncommon Beauty in that building. It's kind of like, you know, Chinese architecture. And thinking about moon gates as portals, what, what David, are the, are the portals for you on the island that when you're there, are portals back to the little boy? That when you go by them or you, you uh, brush up against them, you're sort, of, you're sort of back there. Well, most places. I mean, you know, most places on the, on the north, side of town of North Shore. You know, um, the South Shore is kind of like, uh, a lot of the houses are, you know, recent. They all look the same. Whereas it's, uh, the North Shore has character. So there's a lot of places there that, I guess, because I, th I mean, I think about, I have like memories that I haven't thought about in a long time very often, you know, I have memories of walking down the street as 
being like seven or eight years old, and everybody on their porch was talk, saying hello to me, and I would, I would feel like a million bucks. But uh, I don't really have that many like recurring memories because, uh, you know, I have a lot of memories yet to uh, unearth. birthday with an incredible concert at the Carlisle Hotel right. and now we're in a different part of New York which is the Upper East Side and a storied right. hotel I mean that is the, that was the New York White House when President yeah. Kennedy was in office yeah, yeah. and Marilyn Monroe would come in right. there. and I was going to ask you you know we've talked about everything from you know the bathhouse to the high school battle of the bands to you know the Mercer uh, Theater and the Theater of the Ridiculous. now we're at the Carlisle the Tony Carlisle Hotel and just what it was like for you being a New Yorker, being from the city, to inhabit that space, sort of that, you know, President Truman lived, you know. <laughs> you know, um, in, I forget what year, 2004 or something, I can't remember, uh, we got the remaining dolls back together to play a concert in London. Uh, like one time we were going to do it. And then it was like such a hit that we kept doing it. We were doing it for like eight years. And I was like, okay, that's enough. So uh, Mary and I came home and we decided that uh, we wanted to stay in New York for a while. So uh, we started like dreaming up an act and uh, looking around at places we could play. And... Uh, we did a bunch of shows at the Cutting Room, and Ron Delsner came, who's a friend of ours, and uh, he said, oh, we gotta take this to the Carlisle, so. He got us into the Carlisle, uh, I think it was on Halloween, actually, and uh, it was a big success. So then we got asked to play, I guess for a week, and so we did that, and then we started just getting like, you know, two-week residencies, like twice a year, I guess. Cool. We get a suite. Oh, nice. And uh, we take an elevator to work, which is my dream. I used to be in that van and be thinking, if only you could, like, press a button and be from your bedroom into the dressing room. Because it's the schlep that kills you. And uh, this is pretty cool. And you knew that at 15. You said the schlep. Well, no, I knew it though in my 20s. In my 20s, I knew yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But um, <clears throat> this is pretty close to that. You, know, you get in the elevator and then you walk around on stage. It's You'll never find a virtue on statusing my quote or making my views above a verse. Let others take the high road, I will take the low. I can't wait to rush in. To go with all those seven virtues, for you 
does New York speak to you now? I mean, you, you've, you've lived your whole life in and around New York, right? And you, it's part of you. Um, you know, I kind of just kind of observe it and uh, am kind of like bemused by it, really, you know. As we get older, all of us, we accumulate ghosts. We accumulate people in our lives who are no longer here. Does that color the landscape in a way for you? I like to stroll with Bella Abzug. <laughs> uh, no, but of course, you know, lots of people. I mean, you know, I've lived through like the AIDS epidemic and the Vietnam War and so many things, you know, and now this pandemic, you know, this people who I love that have died from COVID very recently, you know. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's Hal Wilner, for example. Mm. Death is, you know, there's a lot more dead people than there are who are living. Times ain't now nothing like they used to be. Oh, times ain't now nothing like they used to be. And I'm telling y'all the truth. Oh, take it for me. I, I like to, I David, end. All of my interviews with the same question. Go back to my favorite New York poet. It's Walt Whitman. Uh, and, um, and in his book, Leaves of Grass, you know, which he wrote in Brooklyn in 1855, in Song of Myself, he writes this, and I want to ask you about it. I'm going to read something. So Whitman wrote, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, if you want me again look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And as we, we come to a close here, I was gonna ask you, people 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now, when they come across David Johansson and your story and your music, and they want to know you and learn about you, by communing with you in the places where you lived. Where should they look for you in your New York? Where should they look for me? Uh, in front of where the Diplomat Hotel used to be on 43rd Street and 6th Avenue. Because one time, the dolls were playing there, and I was standing in front of it by the Christmas bar, where it's Christmas every day, or it was, and I felt like this cosmic vibration that I was in the center of the universe. Really, I did. Wow. Um, but do you want to be scorned or forgotten? That's what, that is the question. What do you think? I, I, I haven't really decided. Thank you for listening to Your Hometown, where the local is the epic. This is a Kevin Burke production. Visit yourhometown.org to subscribe to the podcast and our various social media channels. And wherever you're listening, please drop us a review. Every star helps. 
For information on live events that we do around the show, visit our New York City series page on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown-podcast. Now let me thank the team that works with me on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, Robert Krowich, our editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, our composer and performer, Sterling Steffen, and our researchers, Shaquille Khan and Jamaris Perez. I also want to thank Tunshere Longay, Nick Gregg, and Charlotte Yu for the vivid illustrations that have given our show another dimension. Our social media manager is Michaela Watkins, and our website and branding design is by Tama Creative. A special thanks to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York, our lead funder, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and all our financial supporters for their commitment to this series. It's because of them that we're able to bring this series to you. Thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.